Glad to have you along for the ride. This is the Planet LP Podcast. I'm Ted Asrigadu. And if you're a music fan, you come to the right place because that's what this podcast is about. Every month, Pop Dose writer Keith Creighton comes on the pod to talk about new music releases in the aptly titled The Pop Dose New Music Report with Keith Creighton. This month, like every month, is packed with new music suggestions that cover a wide variety of tastes. But before we get to Keith, I'm going to speak with Scott Malkus, who also used to write for Pop Dose when the site started in 2008. Scott's been on the podcast a couple of times before, but he'll be on this time to remember Robbie Robertson, who passed away at the age of 80 on August 9th. Robbie is best known for his work with what is arguably the first Americana group known as The Band, which started in 1967 and played their final show in their original lineup in San Francisco at Winterland on November 25th, 1976. That all-star performance was captured on film by director Martin Scorsese in the movie The Last Waltz. Robbie went on to a successful solo career starting in 1987. He made a total of six solo albums, and his final album, Cinematic, was released in 2019. My conversation with Scott is coming up in a bit, but for those of you who want to get social with Planet LP, follow along at Threads, Instagram, Facebook, X, and I do from time to time, videos on my YouTube channel. Just look for my name, Ted Asrogadu. Email me at ted at planetlp if you'd like to connect that way. If you're a fan of this podcast, please tell other music fans in your network about it. We're on all the usual podcasting apps, or if you're not into apps, you can listen to any episode on our website at planetlp.com. Okay, time to travel somewhere down the crazy river. And remember, Robbie Robertson. Scott Malkus, hi, and welcome back to the pod. Glad to be here, Ted. Glad to be back. As I said in my intro, Scott was one of the original writers at Pop Dose, but in 2002, he wrote and directed his first feature film, King's Highway. In 2012, he wrote the nonfiction book, Basement Tape Songs. He wrote the comic book, Wendover, co-wrote the Lifetime movie, Deceit, and wrote two episodes of the Cartoon Network series, Squirrel Boy. He currently works at Cartoon Network as a producer, but in 2008, Scott wrote a really touching piece for Pop Dose's Basement Song series, that was his, on a Robbie Robertson song. That song was What About Now, which was on his 1991 album, Storyville. The piece, which will be linked to on planetlp.com, is about a number of things, but mostly it's about the power of music that speaks to you in turning points in life. So, Scott, talk a little bit about why that song meant so much to you in 1991. Well, I originally got the, the CD based on a, you know, a review from Rolling Stone, mm-hmm. of all places. And, um, well, Rolling Stone was like super influential back then. I, I read it religiously. I'm sure you did too. Yeah. And they, you know, we look back now and like, they weren't always correct. You know, like, right. the, same, <laughs> the same issue with Storyville, like Storyville was the main record re- review that week. They also had a review of uh, Nirvana's Nevermind buried in the, in that same <laughs> magazine and they gave that three stars but the, i guess that's called missing the plot right exactly <laughs> you know i got that album uh based on that review i was i really enjoyed some of robbie's earlier stuff from his first solo album especially that song uh somewhere down that crazy river which is mm-hmm. just a 
I think a masterpiece of just uh, production and uh, and lyrics and and he and has so, that great voice for narration, you know. Yeah, I, I think take I've a read, picture of this, you know, that real deep resonant voice. Yeah, his he and he was a great storyteller, and that was yeah. I I read that Lenoir Daniel Lenoir produced that album was just secretly recording Robbie telling stories and then kind of put it started putting it over music oh, wow. and presented it to him. And what? Robbie's like, what is this? He's like, he's like, yeah, if you don't like it, Lynn's like, no, this is cool. So think about Robertson's songwriting was very cinematic to me. Mm-hmm. I think that he had a knack for creating characters and, and, and a turn of phrase. And then especially in his soul, we're kind of creating these great musical tapestries. Do you think that has something to do with his relationship with Martin Scorsese? I mean, they were like roommates for a while, right? I think that's 100% because of that. I think that obviously he grew up in the rock scene and he did the stuff, he did the tours with Dylan and then they did the stuff with the band. And, you know, he took a step back and wanted to reevaluate when he kind of disbanded the band and his friendship with Scorsese led him to new places. And if you look at his post-band career, a lot of it was working with Scorsese, watching movies, advising mm-hmm. Scorsese and songs to put in movies, and then eventually writing musical pieces that were put into the movies themselves. The case with Storyville, it's like what pulled me in was just, it really did feel like what I imagined New Orleans would be. It just captured that kind of nighttime party, but also interesting characters, dark places that people go. Also had songs about, uh, romantic songs about lovers and and people trying to, to get on with their lives. That's what really pulled me in. And then the song, What About Now, was getting some limited airplay. I was in Ohio living there at mm-hmm. college and uh, the Toledo station was giving it limited airplay. So and anytime you put Aaron Neville voice <laughs> in the song, it's just going to make it 10,000 times better and... Uh, Mm-hmm. And, and whenever that song came on, it, it filled my heart with joy, but it also made it ache at the same time, which is an incredible thing to be able to do as a as a songwriter and a musician. When you were listening to this song, you were going through a real transition in your life. I mean, you were about ready to graduate from college. Absolutely. You were planning on making a move out to Los Angeles. A relationship was ending. I think it had ended. And it so was, was close to yeah. ending, and it was like you don't know what that means. You know, I was in that relationship for like a couple of years, so you know mm-hmm. that. So when something like that is winding down and you know it's winding down, you, you're just going to be this you know, vacant spot in your life. And, um, and, that, and that song continued to, to stay with me when I graduated in 92. I moved back to my parents' house to work uh, at a job. And there was this one week I would spend these nights with my closest friend at the time. We would just sit in my parents' basement <laughs> drinking <laughs> beers with the lights it's down low. And he'd sit It's a very have- Midwestern yes. portraiture painting, right? Yes. The, the basement bars or whatever. Yeah. So we, we, basically, <laughs> we, we were old enough to go out drinking, but it was just easier just to sit and, and put on music on the stereo. And mm-hmm. uh, when you're with friends, you know, you're always trying to introduce them to new music. And so I played that album. I was having one particular important conversation with my friend. His name is Matt. And I was talking about all of my plans and everything. And, and you know, I had this grand plan that I was here for the summer in, in Northeast Ohio. And then I'm out the door. And I'm not going to date anyone. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable to anyone. I'm just going to do this thing. And he was just like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Man. You're, <laughs> you're not living your life, basically, was what he said. You know, you're, you're living for something that might not even happen. And as he was saying that, what about now was playing. And he didn't really know the song like I did. And, mm-hmm. but it just was like one of those serendipitous moments where 
you know, everything is just speaking to you coming from different places. We had that conversation. That was like a Tuesday night and the next day, inspired by that song and inspired by my friend, I, I went and asked uh, out the woman who would eventually become my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, asked her out on our first date. And for that reason alone, that song is really important to me. And Robbie's music became even more important to me. And I really started to pay attention to him. And, and that song was so important to me that when I published my uh, Basement Songs book, I wanted to include the lyrics and, you know, I had to actually re- reach out to Robertson's people to ask for his use of permission in the book and actually they gave it to me. You know? That's great. Yeah. It was really kind of cool. I was like, I, could he have actually read what I wrote? I don't know. <laughs> they say they got to read the piece, right? We got to read the piece right, to yeah. see what you're writing. So yeah, yeah. they read it and they said, go ahead. For me, that 1987 self-titled album by Robbie Robertson that's my favorite out of all yeah. of the ones that he's produced. I liked Storyville a lot. I agree with you that the production's a little slick on Storyville, but he didn't stay within that lane. He tried to broaden out after Absolutely. that. Like in, yeah, in like 1994, he did the music for the Native Americans. It was a soundtrack. And, and then he continued because he was part Native American, but yep. he continued with that exploration of Native American themes. Uh, there was an album that came out in 1998 called contact from the underworld of red boy how's that for an evocative yeah. title huh <laughs> yeah and, you know those later albums were really fascinating to me because mm-hmm. he was mixing electronic music and working with this dj howie b that was a friend of his and yeah and and but at the same time bringing in the the rhythms and the and the vocals from the indigenous culture that he he grew up with and it's really inspiring to me that instead of again going back and trying to retread the, th- the things that he did he just kind of kept pushing forward and trying mm-hmm. to do new things and I, I i wager to say that his friendship with scorsese kind of inspired that as well because you know scorsese is kind of a you know a restless character and aside from the few gangster movies he's made. He's made some really adventurous movies. And and I, I think that that's really kind of cool that uh, Robertson embraced that side of him, his, that part of his family. And mm-hmm. up to the point where the last project that he worked on was the score for Scorsese's new movie coming out this fall, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is, takes place in the Osage County uh, of Oklahoma and it deals with how you know the white people came and displaced native americans got this really crappy land in oklahoma and then they discovered oil on the land and all of a sudden they <laughs> were richer than the people that had displaced them and then, right, right. then a lot of bad stuff started happening and that's so that's and in robertson you know this must have been a dream come true to finally be able to really show and, and put that music to film you know and his last album in 2019 was called cinematic yeah spelled with an s instead of a c yeah. I thought that that was kind of a nice coda to his career, but apparently there's there's more to come with the soundtrack coming out. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a shame. It's a shame he won't get to see it be, succeed because I think it'll be. I don't know. I mean, already that movie's getting praise, and knowing the way Robertson has, you know, he kind of really dug in to finding music and to digging into the roots of American music. I'm sure he really dug in to kind of really make the score to that movie sound appropriate to the to the to what we're seeing on screen. So, Scott, I, I can hope that now with Robbie Robertson's passing and that the news of his importance in popular music and popular culture in a way, that that will spur 
younger people to go check out his music and probably not in physical form. They'll probably just bark into their phones or speakers, <laughs> smart speakers to say, play Robbie Robertson. But hopefully that will show them the scope of his work and how diverse it was. Yeah, absolutely. And he did a great documentary a few years ago about his life and his relationship with the members of the band. Mm-hmm. So maybe they yeah. can go watch that. And um, things that he was doing were ahead of the time. Things that he were doing, he was doing were often inspired by his life and what he found important. And I think that that's all you can ask for from a musician is to just try and continue to be inspired and be creative. Yeah, the name of that documentary is Once We're Brothers which yes. is his biopic on the band. So it's it's from his perspective. Obviously, he brings in the other members. That album I referenced earlier in our conversation, Cinematic, that came out in 2019, some of that music was used in that particular documentary. Well, they came out roughly at the same time. So, yeah, exactly. so check out Cinematic. It's And it's got his own... He he took a painting later in life as well. Maybe maybe it was later in life, but all the artwork on that record is oh, cool. from his paintings. So that's kind of some very modern art, a lot of colors and things like that, but very lovely. Robbie Robertson, quite a music career and made quite an impact on a segment of the population. And let's hope that his stature grows now that he is no longer with us, but his music is. Yes. So thanks, Scott, for being on the podcast. And we'll talk again soon, I promise. My pleasure to be here, Ted. Well, we now pivot from music of the past to music of the present with Keith Creighton and the Pop Dose New Music Report for August 2023. Hello there, Keith. Hello, hello. How's it going? Oh, doing all right. Doing all right. You have some really interesting picks this month, I looked at it like a really wide variety. You, you sort of hit every taste profile, if you will. First off, I just want to thank you for a lot of these picks because I've been listening to them quite a bit since uh, you assembled your master list. And many of them just surprised the hell out of me. I was just like, okay, this is on high rotation from here on out because I really like it. But let's get yeah. to it so we could probably inspire or you can inspire totally. some other of our Planet LP listeners to to check out some of these gems as well. Yeah, I'll be very honest. When we wrapped up the July podcast, I was looking ahead to August thinking, oh my God, we're going to have to phone it in. You know, like there's not <laughs> much on the radar. Yeah. And you know, I was thinking, okay, maybe we'll go back and look at our best of the year so far. But then as we started putting it together, so many amazing albums dropped. But I'm going to go back to one that I missed. And this one came out at the last fall. And when we were talking about Gabriel's, last year, I mean, sorry, last month, Gabriel's featured Jacob Lusk, who was on American Idol season 10. And to right. me, that you, was one of the last great American Idol seasons. When you referenced that, I was not an American Idol watcher. So I had to go and basically look it up, like what was so great about American Idol season 10. So now I, I'm kind of in the know. I didn't watch it, but I've read about it, which doesn't make me any kind of expert, but you were yeah. clearly invested in that. In oh, that show, so, yeah. yeah. Back in those days, the first 10 seasons, you don't just get the winner and the runner up. Like lots of the people like, you know, the Adam Lamberts of the world and Blake Lewis and stuff like that. You know, I mean, some of those runner ups have gone on to be in Oscar nominated movies. You mm-hmm. know, look at Jennifer Hudson. Right. And so, um, you know, season 10 gave us Haley Reinhardt, which is one of my all time favorite artists now. I've got, you know, probably like six full records worth of material from her. James Durbin was the metal guy. He went on to front Quiet Riot for two albums. 
you know, you got then your hippie Casey Abrams does his really kind of groovy stuff. And then Lauren Elena, um, I think that's how you say it, Elena. She's doing car commercials up here in Seattle, but she's got a pretty lucrative country career. And then there's Scotty McCreary with a deep voice. So much so, I think Taryn Killam did a really good impression of him on <laughs> Saturday Night Live. So Pia Toscano was the one from even when she was in the top 24 was like the long awaited ringer. Like this girl is going to win it all. Everybody knew she just had those blockbuster pipes. She had the look like everyone's like, OK, she's going to win this thing and everyone else is going to settle for scraps. And then all of a sudden, when they call it the most shocking idol elimination ever, she was knocked out early. She got wow. knocked out at number eight. I thought, okay, well, she's going to land on her feet. Sure enough, she got an Interscope deal. But for some reason, it just never went anywhere. And huh. then she just kind of faded away, you know? So she sang background for J-Lo and David Foster. Mm-hmm. Ten years later, we finally get the Pia Toscano album. It kind of quietly dropped last year. It's called I'm Good. I was blown away. I kind of came in with low expectations, thinking it was going to be kind of like a light Celine Dion kind of mm-hmm, vibe. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, she does nail the center between Celine Dion and Adele, but oh my God, she is just belts it out of the park. It's really well produced. And, you know, so if you like your pop ballads and your big, huge, bring down the rafters kind of vocals, Pia Toscano's I'm good. is just a great record worth checking out. Oh, I agree. I think she's got some amazing pipes. And you're right about the production on this record. Completely crisp, and it hits all the right notes. Again, if you like powerful singers like Celine Dion and Adele, I think you're going to love Pia Toscano. Oh my God, yeah. On a really good sound system, it sounds great on CD. As does The Loveliest Time from Carly Rae Jepsen, which came out digitally this month, comes out on physicals next month, and it just continues her amazing tradition of doing two albums per cycle you know usually you get one album Mm -hmm. and then maybe they'll put out some b-sides with the singles back in the day when there was physical b-sides she puts out a fully produced cd in a jewel case with the booklet the whole nine yards the loveliest time is the companion the flip side the inversion of the loneliest time which was one of my best albums of last year the loneliest time really kind of was a look back at covid isolation, the kind of feelings of being disconnected that come with that. The loveliest time is kind of where we are now. We're in the sun celebrating, getting back to reinvigorating all of our connections with the highs and lows that come with human connection. And that's really kind of what her jam is. So Rostam from Vampire Weekend is one of the producers and really, really well done stuff. So should we chip off our listeners about the broad categories that you've drawn for some of these picks? It's related to a a very popular movie right now. Yeah, I figured we'd put all the Barbies in the first part and then the Kens in the second part, you know. (laughs) In honor of the the greatest movie of the summer. Oh my God, I'm so upset. Have you seen Barbie? It is. I haven't seen it yet. No, my daughter went to see it. She loved it. And I'm like, you know, I will get to it. It's just, I'm going to go see it at some point. But weekends have been a little been a little busy for me, so I've been uh, yeah. uh, not been able to get out to the movies. But I like the fact that we're on Barbies at this point. We're going to get to Ken's there in a go. minute. Yeah, yeah we're there on Barbies. Yeah, so we're in the Barbie zone right now. Highly recommend it. Um, and the one thing I really love about Carly Rae Jepsen is she is, you know, she actually did have her Barbie look back in the day when she was mm-hmm. blonde. And so but she's 37 now, still sounds like a teen. You know, she, her look and her vibe is still very much teenage dream. But man, she really knows how to just hit all the highs and lows that come with human connection. 
you know, mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. nervousness of like, oh my God, I like someone. Did they like me back? And that's call me maybe. To me, her greatest moment was party for one a couple years ago. If you haven't seen the video, check out the video on YouTube. But just like, I think since the divinals, I touch myself. It's one of the best odes to self-love ever, <laughs> you know, but she, of course, moves on beyond the physical and just what it means to enjoy spending time with yourself. I think it was such an important record and such a great record. Like, oh my God. So and the wild thing is Pitchfork usually hates everything, really mm-hmm. loves this record too. So <laughs> yeah. you can tell, man, when they got Pitchfork on board, really good, upbeat, but really adventurous song. She's really kind of stepping out of her comfort zone on a lot of them. So really love The Loveliest Time by Carly Rae Jepsen. I was kind of taken by the Apple Music review of this record, mostly because I I don't really think of Carly Rae Jepsen's music with much depth, but there was something that was written that made me think about it a little bit differently. It said, throughout human history, the two most reliable motivations for making art have been revenge and infatuation. Carly Rae Jepsen has written hundreds, if not thousands, of aching synth-pop bangers dedicated to the latter, a body of work devoted rigorously to The Crush. Crush as a means of transformation. Crush as a psychedelic experience crush as a night drive on a dark highway with the wind in your hair. Wow. This yeah. person really got into Carly Rae Jepsen. I was just like, what a review. They, they nailed it. They nailed it. And here's another thing I really love about Carly Rae Jepsen. She's an A-list pop star that you know almost nothing about her personal life. Mm-hmm. Like she's unburdened <laughs> by celebrity. You think she could probably just walk into any restaurant and just eat unaided, you know, like without people bothering her. But, you know, you look at Taylor Swift, whose personal life informs all of her songs where people are constantly looking through her or Beyonce or even Madonna. Like, oh, is she talking about the divorce or is she talking about when he cheated on her? Stuff like that, where you're so invested in the celebrity as part of the enjoying the music experience. And I know nothing about Carly Rae Jepsen's personal life. And when you actually look on her Wikipedia under personal, there's absolutely nothing. They have like (laughs) one line that has nothing to do with her personal life because nobody knows anything. I think it's absolute genius that she gets to have a bankable A-list career and not have to be TMZ fodder day in and day out. So she's nailing it on all points. Yeah. Yeah, Good for her. her. I think that that privacy will become the new luxury in the future. And I think Carly Rae Jepsen figured that out very early on and was like, nope, I have a career. I'm a musician. I sing. My personal life is my personal life. And that's that. Now, here's a band that many people would know from their, really their one hit wonder in the United States, although they had greater success in their native UK. Slightly truncated name from the original, but uh, you take it. I'm them in with the Barbies for very particular reasons. So it's Dexies, formerly Dexies Midnight Runners, and their new album is called The Feminine Divine. And here, Kevin Rowland is exploring his version of the gender non-binary. You know, mm-hmm. he's kind of dabbling in his trans feminine and identity and really taking on Mars and Venus themes throughout the gender divide. You know, even though he does take it to a little bit absurd levels here. Back in 1999, long before Caitlyn Jenner and Laverne Cox kind of ushered in the transgender tipping point, you know, Kevin Rowland, you know, who is known for those denim overalls that was part of the whole Dexies look, posed on the cover of his solo album in a dress. The dress is kind of falling off of him. 
And so he was starting to explore things way back then. That was the My Beauty album in 1999. Mm-hmm. I do remember you know, that one. So, and he's very personal or you know, outgoing with his interviews about this particular record, that he's coming to terms with his toxic masculinity and how he's overcompensated for his true identity over the years, you know, in terms of his ability to have healthy relationships with women. One of the press release notes was they say that it's a, st- a personal, if not strictly autobiographical record portraying a man whose views have evolved over time, not just on women, but the whole concept of masculinity he had been raised with. It's interesting because the song cycle was very much Baroque chamber pop. You know, it reminds me more of the Divine Comedy with, you know, Neil Hannon's band than it does the early Dexy stuff. You know, last year he explored the Dexys again by doing the Two Raye album as a three-disc version called The Way It Should Have Sounded. So he kind of made his peace with his big hit album last year. And so with this one, he's kind of really moving forward. And so I think the first half of the record is very much, you know, appealing to people that really like Dexys Midnight Runners. And then the second half goes into the little trippier territory. He kind of slides in some ways into master and servant tropes, you know, when he's talking about women, you know, I'm like, okay, Kevin, you do realize that women are human beings, right? (laughs) Because he's gone from, you know, women as he clearly didn't treat them right to now elevating them to goddesses. So he's talking about worshiping, like turning them into idols versus contemporaries. He's really going out of his way to show how much he cares for women, which is great. But, you know, it's kind of like very much Mars Venus here. It's like, dude, you realize they're human beings too. Treat them like a human being. You're a human being. It's interesting because I remember I'm trans. I identify as trans feminine, you know, Mm -hmm. gender non-binary. And so- I was very excited to kind of explore this record as I try to explore my own feminine divine, which I know you can't tell the way I'm talking in FM radio voice, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it's very important to me as I explore fashion and my whole physical and kind of spiritual presentation to the world. I was really excited to kind of run through this whole thing. And I like both sides of the record, the traditional and the trippy stuff. Yeah. The trippy stuff kind of left me cold because I started with the, you know, I'm sort of shaving and like bopping along like, Oh, this is kind of nice. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the early Dexy stuff. And then as, as the trippy stuff started, I'm like, wait, is this the same? Is this the same record? Because I had it on streaming. So I wasn't watching the track listing. So I thought maybe the record had ended and something else started afterward. So I go and I check my phone. I'm like, Nope, same record. Okay. So I thought it was a bit like going to a concert and listening to like the group's hits, like, yeah, come on, Eileen, this is great. And then they take a complete left turn with the second half of a room clearing sort of jazz odyssey experience, (laughs) (laughs) a la la Spinal Tap. One of the most interesting tracks on there is he revisits a song from earlier called Manhood. And he turns it into like this Greek chorus, you know, with this women of a whole female chorus going, it's all right, Kevin, you know, and with mm-hmm. your manhood. And so to me, it was the great companion piece to Must I Evolve by Jarv Is, which is Jarvis Cocker of Pulp. And so he did that as with his first solo release with this new band, you know, where Jarvis asks the Greek chorus, must I evolve? And the chorus goes, yes, 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 yes. Must I change? Yes, 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 yes. You know, like that kind of stuff. To me, it was the same thing. Like Kevin is exploring with this kind of all female Greek chorus coming to terms with his manhood and who he is and all that kind of stuff. So it's all right. Kevin is one of the fun ones to check out from this record. One of the things you bring up uh, about not only this record, but your personal story as well, 
it reminds me a little bit of a podcast that I listened to and have been listening to for a while. I don't mean to tell people like, hey, ditch Planet LP, go check out this other podcast, but it fits within this topic. The podcast is The Gray Area with Sean Ealing. Last week, we're recording this on August 13th, so last Monday, they had a new episode called The New Crisis of Masculinity. He spoke with a, a journalist named Christine Emba, who's a columnist at the Washington Post. She wrote a piece called Men Are Lost, and Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness. But they talked about the confusing state of manhood with these sort of toxic figures like Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson. But towards the end, they talked about how masculinity could be redefined. And at one point, Sean Ealing said, aren't we all just non-binary, just on a spectrum in a way? These neat categories of male and female or masculine and feminine, there's a duality, but it just leaves out all the nuance in between. And it reminded me a little bit of when I was in college as an undergraduate, we had to take these cluster of classes to graduate. It was like a nine unit cluster. So I picked human sexuality. And one of the things that my one of my human sexuality professors said, she was a sociology professor, but she said, you know, we're just sexual beings. We're on a spectrum. We're on, you know, we're not just one way or the other, but we all have thoughts or we all take actions in some way that express both sort of, if you want to categorize them in genders, but it kind of reminded me of what you were talking about, but also this podcast episode of the gray area with Sean Ealing. So that might be something to sort of be as a companion piece as you listen to the feminine divine by Dexys. Yeah. Cause it's perfectly timed with the Barbie movie. Cause people are forgetting the main message of the Barbie movie, because even before Barbie, when the you know toxic masculinity started trending as a buzzword, right. men got all their panties in a bunch saying masculinity isn't toxic. I'm like, no, yeah. Toxic masculinity is one form of masculinity. Right, right. You know, why don't we talk about healthy masculinity and toxic masculinity? But mm -hmm. no, it makes good sound bites and it really helps the right wing clutch their pearls by thinking any reference of toxic masculinity is an assault on all masculinity. And so, yeah. what is a healthy expression and what is not? And the big thing that comes into that is the right is going out of its way to keep gender identity and sexual orientation tangled up as one topic. And they are two different, completely different expressions, right. you know? So, but everyone's always like, well, I'm totally straight, but then wanting to show a softer side, you know? And I look at a lot of people in my, you know, I watch them on Facebook, you know, they have these beautiful little boys and they're moppish hair when they're young. And then they shave their hair off and turn them into bruisers, you know? And then they talk about, oh, my son, crushed it in athletics. Yeah, He's going to be yeah. a total brawler and stuff like that, where they allow their daughters to be artistic and to explore fashion mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. different, you know, identities and stuff like that. And so unfortunately, well, yeah, like the patriarchy is holding on tight and that's why, you know, the right has a major problem with Barbie. Not to dwell on Shawnee Ling's podcast. Please listen to Planet LP. <laughs> We're just a little podcast somewhere. There's in the podcast to go around. It's true. It's true. But he did talk a little bit about that. We as a society do not raise boys into men in a way that is healthy. Instead, yeah. we have these very rigid ideas of masculinity that sometimes when fathers are absent, whether physically or even emotionally, the void is filled by 
people like those that I had mentioned. I don't want to re-mention them, but these people that say, yeah, I am toxic and that's fine and I'm masculine. And they're defining it in such a way that it's not healthy. It's it's full of anger. It's full of hate. There's not a lot of love, empathy, or a good kind of strength, if you will. As far as this podcast episode is concerned, it, it is a problem in society and has been for a very long time. Because if if parents are encouraging their girls to explore a wide variety of things within the world and absolutely healthy to have a wide variety of emotions, then why do you do the opposite with boys and you shrink them down into you only have to have these emotions and you should be able to do these manly type of jobs or something like that? You know, you're defined by your career and to pick a manly career. Don't do anything to help people. Do things to help yourself. It's all about self-reliance. We go out of our way to teach our daughters to protect themselves against sexual assault, and yet we never teach our sons not to sexually assault people. You know, yeah, because so- we say, shove your feelings down, put them in a mm-hmm. box, mm-hmm. the Book of Mormon song. Which was a hilarious song. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> Thank yeah. you for referencing Book of Mormon. They really nailed it. Recently yeah. saw it, but uh, yeah, I had a good laugh on that one. That was pretty okay. Funny. Well, why don't we talk then about some men that are getting it right? You know, let's go to Ken's. All anti-men. Well, let's go to the they're, Kens. They're, they're Kens, but not the Ken that became toxic in the movie, from what I understand, right? Exactly, and yeah, no spoilers on Barbie, but yeah, oh my sorry. god, worth this. I, I think I'm enough of that movie. Yeah. Might have to edit that part out. There you go. There you go. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first up, once again, who would have thought all these years later, 2023 is going to be the year of Rick Springfield? <laughs> no, I didn't. Hey, what are some of your predictions for the future? Well, I think in 2023, Rick Springfield is going to have his year. You watch and see. And it's, yeah, you know, because if you go back in the Wayback Machine to May of 2023, we talked about Rick Springfield's self-titled record that came right. out. This was yeah. a long lost you know, 1974 record that finally got re-released. And now here he is with a full, not only album of all new material, but a double album, 20 songs, fits on a single CD. It's called Automatic. And man, I normally can't sit through 20 songs in a song cycle. I'm like, okay, I'll break it up into two 10 song experiences. But man, this one just sucks you right in and it has just got a groove and it has enough diversity from song to song that I'm like, holy crap, this is a fun listen. And I just get knocked out on the other side just with my head spinning. So really great record. I haven't listened to all 20 songs yet. I did go through probably a good seven of them before we recorded this episode. I like the lead track, Exit Wound. I think that's a pretty good song. But then there's this sort of very dirty, boppy song called Come Said the Girl. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Rick, you just, you know, if you ever read his biography, it's so full of all his sexual exploits. So I thought, well, there you go. We know him mainly for the 80s and Jesse's Girl, but he (laughs) had been around since the late 60s as an Australian pinup guy long before he got the General Hospital gig in the 80s and had the big hit, you know. But if you like Jesse's girl you're gonna like a lot of the songs on here she talks to angels is another big 80s sounding track but then he goes right into the title track on track number three and it's like holy crap he suddenly sounds like sammy hagar he's singing from a totally different part of his voice like from the gut really kind of manly man i really really like this record and i also like the fact that it you know sounds great on cd and we're going to talk about wolfgang van halen in a second sure i love in the liner notes You know, he's thanking all the people that put this together. And he says, and I'd like to thank you for buying this album. And if you didn't buy it, then give it back to the person who you borrowed it from. Nobody (laughs) likes a klepto. 
Wolfgang Van Halen says in his, he's like, Andy, you, you could have totally just streamed this, but you actually bought it and you're reading all the stuff I wrote right now. That's pretty cool. Thank you. You know, <laughs> so nice. I love how like they acknowledge the physicals and stuff like that. So very good. You yeah. know, but yeah, if you really like classic Rick Springfield, you're going to have a lot to like here. And then there's a lot that's like, oh yeah, Rick is still very modern and very in the now. So it's a really great power pop record for 2023. Yeah. And we pivot now to public image limited there's always been dogged as john lydon's other band because of the sex pistols so iconic remember the sex pistols had one record exactly back in the 70s and public image limited has been going steadily now for 45 years band so really it should be flipped the other band should be the sex pistols not public image limited yeah. right yeah, I mean, the thing is, Dave Grohl still gets the the guy from Nirvana thing, even though Foo Fighters for now for more than 30 years has been the biggest band in the world, you know, in terms of selling out stadiums and all that. And so, but I got to hand it to Public Image Limited because they have been both sticking true to their post-punk avant-garde roots, but also they know how to put out some pop songs. I forgot <laughs> this podcast. We can swear. You can um, swear. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. So they, they put out shit you can dance to that really has good grooves. They put out pop songs and then they still put out their politically charged avant-garde post-punk fair. And so I was kind of thinking, okay, this might be their mellow album because Leiden recorded this while tending to the final years of his wife, you know, who we've been married to since the Mm seventies, you know, she's 14 years his senior. She was Mm -hmm. falling in with dementia. Now, Lindsay Parker from Yahoo music has an absolute must read interview because who'd have thought the most cantankerous guy in all of rock and roll is a complete softy who absolutely loved his wife and took care of her to the very end. And so this record, the end, end of world is very much a testament to those years because it was recorded over the four to six years that he was taking care of her until she passed earlier this year. Mm-hmm. The song that closes the entire album is called Hawaii. And it is just a tender tearjerker of an ode to his wife as she is in her final days. And they entered it into the Eurovision contest, you know, as an official entrant from Ireland. And even though they didn't make it to Eurovision, that helped really kind of platform this record as it was coming out. Mm -hmm. But if you think that the whole record is going to be a soft kind of tender album, you're mistaken. It is a typical PIL record. You know, it's it's urgent, it's entertaining, it's danceable, it's fascinating. There's twists and turns. He sings, he does his, you know, sing talk stuff. It's another absolutely delightful record. You know, PIL is basically almost never does wrong. I really love their records. Our next featured band, you said something about it that I'll let you do the line because you you had a great line about it, but go for it. Let's uh, let's hear who who this is and what you got to say about them. Yeah, well, here's the interesting thing. So the public image record was an odd to someone who actually died and left this mortal coil. And the Hives record is about someone who died that never existed at all. It's called The Death of Randy Fitzsimmons. I was trying to sum it up in one line. I'm like, the notorious sharp-suited Swedes are back to save the world from safe rock. I like that and, part, safe rock, because <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of that out there. You figure they've been around for like 20 plus years, and they've been gone for the last decade. So that first decade that we had the hives they were kind of coming back to be rock stars because you got your one republics and your imagined dragons Mm -hmm, you mm kind of know what they look like and you know a little bit about them but you don't really know who they are the hives were like no we are going to be freaking rock stars and they were rock stars they had the look they had the hooks they had the songs just absolute bangers 
it's a really hard, scrappy punk record, you know, that they come in guns a blazing and if they're as if they were kids right off the bat trying to prove themselves to the world because they've been gone for 11 years. And man, you wouldn't think that this album is only about 31 minutes long because it just pummels you with track after track after track. And it kind of finds a little bit of a groove near the end. But oh my God, really great record. And my favorite track on it is called The Bomb because in the sing-along chorus, they do, you know, the double negative and then they do the triple negative and then the quadruple negative in terms of, (laughs) you know, what do you not not want to do? (laughs) You know, go home, you know, and then they just keep escalating it. And it's just ridiculous. (laughs) And it's a lot of fun. So and which one did you like? You like I, I like Crash into the Weekend. I thought that was stellar. I like the strip back feel of it. But you're right. This thing comes out of the gate very aggressive for probably a good four or five songs. So you're just being hit, pommeled. And then I, I just felt like Crash into the Weekend, the fact that they kind of stripped it down a little bit, it, it gave me a little bit of a breather and it made me pay attention a little bit more. But that was on just like the second listen. I was like, oh, I kind of like this song. So I, I put that one on our playlist. I think they once again produced it really well. And then that kind of perfectly translates us to Wolfgang Van Halen's Mammoth 2. Man. When they have the number two next to it, you think, oh, you know. sophomore slump, right? Because it's like, oh no, shoot. Uh, the first one coming out of the gates, always the really strongest one. And then the, the, the follow-up is proven for many artists to be the most difficult album to make. It's the yeah. second one. But this yeah, one. So, oh my God. It absolutely crushes you know so he's coming fresh off the barbie soundtrack kind of the weave barbie into all this because he actually plays guitar on the big ryan gosling i am ken song right let's line it up in one word this sob son of bertinelli you know <laughs> valerie bertinelli yep you know roars back with another magnum opus you know because he plays every note you know himself becoming like the one man world's most dangerous band and then as i was thinking of this just complete pummeling of music it made me think oh my god this is the the full album manifestation of wayne and garth's pain cave remember from wayne's world you know where garth sings come into my pain cave where i'll bludgeon you you don't have to scream because your ears are bleeding that's perfectly normal when someone bludgeons you the bleeding part that i was just referring to you know because that's really what this album is. You know, like just big, huge rock songs that just careen out of the gate and don't stop until the end of the, re- the record. And, you know, he knows how to do big choruses, big, huge guitar solos, big hooks. You know, every song is just an absolute banger. And so like, oh my God, he is just honoring his dad, but moving way forward. Oh, absolutely. I think calling him son of Bertinelli, SOB, is absolutely right. He certainly made it plain, not only in the first record, but this current one, that as a solo artist, he's never been in his dad's shadow. I mean, I know that he absolutely adored his father, loved him through and through, but his music is so different from Van Halen, even though he shares the same last name as his father, duh, but it's, it's not Van Halen too, or anything like that. There's a little bit when he does sort of the, uh, harmonies on the vocals, there's a little bit of that Van Halen sound, but everything else, it's like, it's him. It's not son of Eddie, like John Bonham's son, Jason. Jason is just so immersed in the Led Zeppelin era that he just wants to sound just like dad. 
Wolfgang doesn't want to sound just like dad. He wants to sound like himself. So yes, definitely son of Bert and Ellie. We're going to go to an artist who's been around a long time as well. That is Phil and Graham the Parker. Graham you know, Parker, remember yeah. this is 40. Paul Rudd has his fledgling indie label that he's trying to resurrect and keep going. And so then he, instead of hiring the next Justin Bieber, the next just big thing, mm-hmm. you know, his wife is completely like, you did what? You know, <laughs> when he signs Graham Parker, follow your heart. And that's what that whole storyline was. And so you got to hand it to Graham Parker for being in on the joke, kind of like past his prime, mm-hmm. you know, but he still has something to say. And that's when, you know, that's what the kind of the apex of the story is. And this is 40 when he puts on the great show, you know, and then everyone kind of has the happy ending in the movie in real life, the people at big stir records who we absolutely love librarians with hickeys being mm-hmm. among Chris church. A lot of the people we've been talking about throughout the year, big stir is now signed Graham Parker for his new album, last chance to learn the twist. Graham Parker has been around since the era of Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe. For me, his sound always kind of blends if you're doing a playlist in with Joe Jackson, Billy Joel. You know, he sounds a lot like Van Morrison too, without the baggage that comes with Van Morrison. (laughs) You know, you put this record on and it's just a majestic record. It's got some blues elements and great instrumentation. Graham's voice sounds as good as it did in the late 70s. And so it's just great to see like, okay, all these years later, you're still putting out amazing records. You know, when, when Graham Parker kind of came on my radar, it was, it was certainly the early 80s when you reference Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe, they're all kind of come out of the same senior class as it were. Um, I'm talking high school in a way. And I, I always felt like, oh, well, he's, I don't mean this in a bad way, but he's he's sort of a poor man's Elvis Costello. He had a similar sound as Elvis did. But when I listen to this record, one person that he sounds like, and it's not a criticism, it's it's a compliment. But he has a kind of Bob Dylan sound to him a little bit. There's a groveliness in his voice at times on a couple of the songs that sound like how Dylan sounds now, whose voice is really kind of, well, grovelly. But mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised. I was listening to this. I usually take a, a walk during my lunch hour just to kind of get out of the office and everything. I put this album on and I listened to the whole thing and I just kept thinking, you know, he used to be like, he's kind of like Elvis Costello, a little different, maybe a little lighter, but, you know, maybe having to come out of, out of that shadow for the longest time. But now I was listening to him all like, no, he doesn't sound like his contemporaries at the time. He sounds like himself. And, but then I hear a little bit of, you know, Dylan and it all fits. It all sounds great within the context of the song. So I really enjoyed this record. He'll take that as the highest compliment because when he first landed in London and was trying to find a band, he referenced Bob Dylan in the mm-hmm. ad that he posted. I think it was an uh, element movie maker that got him the band that became his first platform. Yeah. yeah. My dad, when way back in the like 1980 bought me a book. And at this point I'm into ABBA, you know, and Olivia Newton, John and all that. Mm-hmm. He bought me this book called the new music. You know, he got it from his book club and he gave, gifted it to me. And I'm like going through the pages as like a 12 year old going, what the hell is all this stuff? Because it's been my Bible ever since this book called every major band that was going to happen in the eighties as they were just starting. Oh my and there's gosh. a full page on Graham Parker in here. Back when this book came out, Susie and the Banshees and In Excess were fledgling little bands that these authors said are going to go places. Full page on Graham Parker, and they talk about his love for Bob Dylan in it. 
if you could just like take a picture of it, we could put it on yeah. our socials, just of the Graham Parker one. And see yeah, what totally. Think, uh, and that's a good segue to the Flash Cubes. Yes. Yes. Which is a power pop band that was around in the CBGB era, you know, in the late seventies, they were going to be the next big thing. There was a lot of buzz. They're going places. And then poof, nothing happened. Go places. But it's a great happy ending. Don't worry. We're not here to down everyone down. So what happened was they put out a couple of songs. Those songs then became cult hits, became legendary. And so they resurrected in the 1990s and been together ever since. On their new album, they decide we're going to do a tribute album to all of our favorite songs, like all these dusty singles that people might not be aware of or may have forgotten about. When they put out the word that they were doing this, they got a lot of the original musicians behind these singles to guest on this album and contribute. Tributes to Slade, to Shoes, the Paley Brothers, Chris Stamey, Dwight Twilley, the Poises, and even Sparks. I didn't know a lot of these songs. Like the lead track is from the Pez band, Baby It's Cold Outside, and it's not the version or the song you're yeah, thinking of. Right, the one that they play every Christmas, right? When I had it on, I was thinking, this is like the greatest album The Who never released. <laughs> you know, because Power Pop, for those that don't aren't in the know, is Fun, Fun, Fun by the Beach Boys, the early Who album, you know, the peak invasion era of the Beatles. That's Power Pop. Big hook, earnest vocals. You know, so that was like wave one. Then wave two came when Sweet, Cheap Trick, The Monkees, The Knack, and The Cars kind of really hit in the late Mm -hmm. 70s through the 80s. The third wave, though, came in the 90s. Material Issue, Fountains of Wayne, and Green Day. And now we're in a fourth wave, you know, which is kind of centered around the International Pop Overthrow Festival. But the Flash Cubes are really riding that wave. They fit right in with this international collective of power pop bands. My God, it's just a really, really fun record. All 12 tracks just absolutely fly. It's well-produced, and it sounds, even though they're singing from all these different songwriters, it sounds like a completely cohesive record. It does. Masters by the Flash Cubes. Yeah. Here's one where I put down on my notes a really good 90s mixtape. But it's a soundtrack. So let's talk briefly about that one. Yeah. So we're kind of going from the 70s and 80s. Now let's go talk like deep rooted in the 90s. You know, the Yellow Jackets, which is that Showtime series that I've never seen, but I hear. I've never seen either. Yeah. I hear good things, as they say. You know, so this one kind of mixes some reimaginings from some iconic stars from that era. Alanis Morissette that kind of sings the theme song. And if you think Mm -hmm. this is. You know, because Lannis Morissette was edgy, and then she kind of became like a middle-of-the-road, mainstream, shell crow type singer. Well, she's got her edge back, definitely, you know, doing like the theme song from this series. And then Florence and the Machine do a really, really dark version of No Doubt's Just a Girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but then it's just a who's who of 90s bangers. Garbage, Farouk Assault, Nirvana, Pulp. And they're not putting on, you know, Smells Like Teen Spirit. They're putting on the really dark, edgy, something in the way, you know, but that yeah, goes into- Yeah, I think it was a garbage song. It's Crush Number One, which wasn't a hit. It was, you know, it's definitely a deeper track. So like I said, a really good mixtape. It's, it's like, you want to listen to some good 90s music? Listen to this. Mm-hmm. The next one I wanted to spotlight is by The Love Strange. It's called Here Comes the Mail. Fronted by a guy named Carl Strange, that's his stage name, the band haven't put out new music since 2015. I I did include their song back in 2015 on a 
Popdo series I was doing called Single Play, and the name of the song was Hey Now People. Back then, I wrote with the success of bands like Neon Trees and Imagine Dragons. It seems part of the pop music terrain has shifted to dot 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 Provo, Utah. Hard to believe that an area known more for Donnie and Marie, Robert Redford Ski Resort, and oh yeah, Brigham Young University is also the home of a vibrant alt-rock and pop music scene where The Love Strange made their debut in February of this year. That was 2015, by the way. Fronted by Carl Strange, the band formed in Salt Lake City where Strange practices patent and trademark law. Hey, you gotta make some dough first if you want to follow your musical passions later in life. Anyway, Strange sent me a copy of the band's new album and my ears instantly perked up when Hey Now People came on. The music is just so damn catchy that you may miss the lyrical content of the narrator questioning his upbringing and faith. Overall, this is a fine debut from a band that's more than ready for prime time. So now, flash forward to 2023, and this new song, Here Comes the Mail, comes out. Musically, I think this song is a rock tour de force. It's got great energy, the tone of the guitars right in my wheelhouse. And it's even got this throwback 80 synth break that it all adds up to a very strong song by The Love Strange. Lyrically, it's probably the only rock song I know that takes as its subject matter debt, not personal debt, but national debt in the United States and lays blame on runaway government spending on the generations that precede Gen Z and younger. So everyone over 40 gets blamed for the debt we're leaving our kids. Biden, Trump, baby boomers, Gen Xers, maybe even FDR. I get the feeling that Carl Strange was watching Schoolhouse Rock maybe in the mid-90s. There was a, a Schoolhouse Rock episode called Tyrannosaurus Debt, which was this big dinosaur eating money. And it was talking about how we have this national debt, and it's always been with us. I look at it like a, a political message song. And political message songs can spotlight injustices in the world and the country. It can lead to political action. We saw with Live Aid, with Famine Relief, or Sun City and Apartheid. Farm Aid, which went far longer than Live Aid did, tried to help farmers struggling against the corporate takeover of a lot of family farms. But to my knowledge, there aren't any current popular songs that are addressing say, the loss of personal freedom post-Dobbs decision, or the climate crisis, or homelessness, livable wages, or fair democratic elections, all those topics are fair game and could be issues that are ripe for musical artists to leverage their popularity to bring attention to. So I give the Love Strange a lot of credit for planting their flag on an issue that they care about. But will this song prove to have political legs? It's difficult to know, of course, but Starting a conversation outside the silos of think tanks and policy papers and the echo chamber of partisan media about what to do about national debt, I think, is a good first step. This song comes out on August 25th. Check out thelovestrange.com to uh, purchase it or watch for it on streaming services. So that's The Love Strange. Yeah, I think with your list there, you just wrote their whole next album. You know, you've... <laughs> You're welcome, Carl. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I can't wait to hear. There's a lot going on in that mix. Can't wait to hear that on CD or in a lossless file and stuff. It's like yeah, really so good musicianship. And so I can't wait to hear it beyond my laptop because, man, if it, if it crushes on the laptop, which it totally does, it's going to sound great on the stereo. Carl did send an MP3 just as a as a preview for us, and I've I've listened to it about uh, seven or eight times, and I love the energy of it. And you're right, it does sound better. I've put it on the best headphones I can, but again, it's an MP3, and we're kind of 
snobby and want the snobs, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, or the CD version. Well, that actually and sets really, us up for the next one that we're going to talk about, yes. which is the Ocean Blue has just oh really, re-released yeah. Davy Jones Locker, you know, which was their first truly indie record in 1999 after they did three albums for Sire and mm-hmm. then one more for Mercury before they went on hiatus until 2013 when Ultramarine kind of ushered in a whole new era for the band. And the band is completely back touring, putting out records that are just as good as, you know, the ones back in the heyday. And so especially the last one, um, Kings and Queens, Knaves and Thieves was my album of the year a couple of years ago when that thing came out. So, you know, do you remember like, how did you discover the ocean blue? I think the same way you did. <laughs> Honestly, okay. it was it's it's identical. When I read your notes on that, I was like, yeah. that's how I learned about them. Remember when Sire put out the Just Say series? You know, yes. there was Just Say Yo, Just mm-hmm. Say Mo, Just Say, you know, I think Doe or whatever. There was like four or five in the series. And that's where Sire really put out amazing compilations of everything that was on the label where you can get stuff like Madonna and Talking Heads, and then you get some left field stuff like By God 20. But this is how I discovered the Ocean Blue, Daniel Mm -hmm. Dax, and the Wild Swans, who all three of them became some of my all-time favorite artists. They had the song Between Something and Nothing on there, right? On that compilation. Was that the one? Yeah, that song still gives chills. Yeah, that one and Drifting Falling went up on another one of the compilations. This was the USA's kind of contribution to the UK scene that gave us Echo and the Bunnymen, the Smiths, New Order, and Blanc Manche, we're going to talk about soon. This came out of Hershey, Pennsylvania. I know. I thought that they were a British band when I first got the compilation CD. I thought, oh yeah, they sound like the Smiths and so forth, or Echo and the Bunnymen. Yeah. And I found out they're from Hershey, PA. Like, they're American? Okay. All right. And so the thing is, I've interviewed David from the band a couple of times. I'm a huge, huge fan of this band. And yet for Davy Jones Locker and then Waterworks and then um, See the Ocean Blue, that was kind of, you know, between the Sire era and this amazing new era that they're in, I kind of had the, okay, that's their lost indie period of the band. And this remaster has made me completely reappreciate and reevaluate Davy Jones Locker because I put it on a really beautiful stereo system, and oh my god, it sounds absolutely amazing. I mean, these songs hold their own with everything from both their current era, which is amazing, and the Sire records. The way I look at this record is I AB'd them, and I don't have the full remaster yet. You you got it, but I was just listening to the EP that was on streaming, my streaming service is Apple Music. So they do all lossless for the most part. So you're getting a pretty broad mix. But I listened to the song Denmark just to A-B it. Because when I first heard Denmark yeah. on the remaster, I was like, wow, did they remix this? Because I'm listening to it. I'm all like, this sounds not completely different, but it sounds a bit like a different song. So I compare it to like listening to AM and FM radio. AM radio, yeah, you can hear it. It's it's present. and But FM, if you have good FM speakers, it's more immersive. And that's what has been done on this remaster. It has taken something that felt a little bit distant in terms of its mix from its original 1999 mix to something that is completely present and demands your attention. All I can say is 
Bravo. Man, it sounds absolutely amazing. And now here's one thing I'm going to throw out there. I watched the new video. They shot a new video for Denmark. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what's happening with that video because it sounds just a fraction too fast. Maybe it was just the way it was streaming that day, but David just sounded a little bit too sped up because I was like, hmm. Is that the way the new song is going to sound? And no, Denmark sounds completely exquisite on CD with this reissue. So if you see the video, realize that might not be the exact mix you're going to get on the CD. The CD is just exquisite. I mean, the textures and all the, you know, diverse musicianship, the different kind of guitars and pedals and stuff that they use. It's just really, really well done. I'm going to actually go back and check out the remaster that came out last year of See the Ocean Blue. Because even though I love, love, love their entire catalog, that's probably my least favorite record of theirs. So I'm, oh, well, maybe I need to check that one out too. So it's going to go in my Amazon cart this year, this week. There so, yes. Yeah. So, punchier, crisper, better dynamics is what you're going to get with this remaster. So, put that on your list and get, do yourself a favor, folks. Just get the CD. Don't, you know, you can do the, you can do the lossless streaming. That's fine. But if you get the CD and you got good speakers at home and all that and you got a decent stereo, you're going to be in for a sonic treat for your ears. Exactly. And so that brings us to Disclosure. It's now been 10 years since Settle came out. Disclosure is a DJ duo that kind of also helped introduce the world to Sam Smith. Sam Smith, Jesse Ware, Aluna George are all providing vocals on this breakthrough album. I mean, Pitchfork, once again, who hates everything. They're the Mikey of Life cereal. They are the Mikey of Life cereal. He won't eat it. He hates everything. Pitchfork won't like it. They hate everything. (laughs) Oh, my God. They love this record. You know, they literally said the Surrey duo have not only made 2013's best dance record so far, they've concocted one of the most assured, confident debuts from any genre in recent memory. They like it. Hey, Pitchfork. They do. It sounds like not from 2013, not from 2013 or 2023. It sounds 2033 and beyond. You know, it is just a gorgeous. I mean, it it sounds fantastic. It's trippy. You've got the vocals that kind of come in, come out. You don't have to give it too much attention. It just kind of like moves your body and just kind of it's it's a vibe. And then finally, we get to our. Our last one. I think this is our last one, right? Yeah, this last one. is This one fits perfectly in with the Disclosure record. and But yet, it's from someone whose heyday was back in the early 80s, and that is Neil Arthur of Blancmange. Now, do you remember Blancmange in the 80s? With like, I do. Yeah, Don't Tell Me and Living on the Ceiling and Waves were these big, over-the-top pop records in the 80s, even though they were kind of lumped in with New Wave, they were very, very pop forward. Blancmange put out those three classic records, which have since been expanded to really gorgeous three-disc super deluxe editions, which you can get. But then they disappeared. And then they came back with the original duo, did one more record called Blancburn before Stephen Luscombe had to bow out for health reasons. He's still alive to this day, thank God, but you know he's not able to do the touring that Neil Arthur wants to do. But since they only put out four records and Neil put out a great solo record in that time too, you know, over the course of 30 years, Neil Arthur has been making up for lost time and he has put out, I think, a good dozen or more full length records under the name Blancmange, but also he has two, a couple side hustles named Near Future and Fader. And now his latest is called The Remainder and Eversong, the debut album, is among the strongest of these electronic pop records, you know, that are both edgy and experimental, and yet also 
completely radio friendly. Broken Manhole Cover is one of the first singles that kind of came off this because what Neil does is he has the gorgeous voice. He could just take really random turns of phrases and that becomes where the vocal is just as much of an instrument as everything else. You know, the synths, the drums, all that kind of stuff where he's not saying anything really deep, but he gets something that sounds really good coming out of his mouth and they make a mm-hmm. hook out of it. And that's the song. One of the other reviews of it that came out says the trio's crisp glacial rhythms, cascading synths, psychedelica, absurd humor, and lyrical x-rays of everyday life all feature strongly on their forward-looking debut album. And I'm like, I totally get it. That nailed it. It's a really, really edgy, fun, crisp record. So I would definitely put the Remainder Ever song and the Settle, you know, from Disclosure, the 10th anniversary. Those two, if you like really trippy electronica, Man, they're great records. And you can sample the song Broken Manhole cover on our playlist that features songs from these albums that we talked about on the Pop Dose New Music Report with Keith Creighton. Ooh, so that, many, was a, we, that was a lot. We got that through a was lot. a lot. Yes. Oh, but, crap. But, oh, see, and, and the bat phone's going off. It did went off right on time. Yeah. Man, we nailed it. That was when I got, we, we got to wrap Keith, this bad boy up. Yeah. Yeah. Keith, thank you so much for being uh, on the podcast. We will see you next month. And it's oh, always a pleasure to have you on. It's going to be a huge September. So some come back in September. We got some big, huge releases to talk about. And my thanks to Scott Malkus in the first segment talking about Robbie Robertson. And thank you for listening, as always, to the Planet LP Podcast. I'm Ted Astrogato. See you next time. Bye.